0: Acts chapter 17, we're going to be continuing in the book of Acts with the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he's gone to Macedonia, and then from from really as he got to Macedonia to Philippi, then Thessalonica, then Berea, and now he's taken a ship over to Athens. We looked at his arrival in Athens last week, and now we're going to look at, at Paul's sermon there in Athens as Paul is brought in to the Areopagus before what would have been like a city council, if you will. And as questioned, we're going to hear his response. So if you will, Acts chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we hear Paul's message before the Areopagus, Before these civic leaders in Athens, as we hear him articulate the gospel in the midst of what would have been the brightest minds in the known world in that generation, in front of those who would have been the great thinkers and philosophers and debaters of his age. We ask, Father, that we would see that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel even in the midst of those men. That he's not afraid of being called a fool. That he knows that that though the, the gospel, the cross and resurrection is foolishness, To those who are perishing, it is the power of God to those who are being saved. We pray that you would help us to understand your word by your spirit and rejoice in it. We pray, Father, for those who are not looking to Christ, that they would look to him and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've looked at the mission of Paul the last couple of weeks, as he went into Thessalonica and Berea coming out of Philippi. I have emphasized something really as we went there, um, and then last week as he came into Athens about Paul, which is that Paul loved the lost. He had a zeal to see them saved, and that above all, Paul was jealous for the glory of Christ. He wanted to see lost people saved, and he was willing to risk life and limb to see them saved. He wanted to see Christ exalted. His heart was filled with divine jealousy for Christ, and he was willing to be mocked and laughed at and mistreated and imprisoned and killed if necessary so that Christ would be known and exalted. But we've touched briefly, as we have only briefly, on what Paul preached. As we, we saw things Paul saw. And things Paul did, and sort of the way Paul came at people, and even heard about Paul's motivations. But we've only touched briefly on what Paul preached and how Paul preached. And so today, what I want to do, look at is is really two simple things: how did Paul proclaim the gospel, and what did Paul proclaim when he proclaimed the gospel? Really, that's simple. How did he proclaim the gospel among the Athenians, and? What did he proclaim when he proclaimed it to them? So first, I want to look at how Paul preached among the Athenians. How did he preach? Here's what I want to start with this supposition. Paul took time to understand those to whom he was preaching. If you heard me, Paul took time to understand those to whom he he was preaching. If we don't understand that about Paul, we will not understand how Paul did evangelism, how he preached. So look at Acts 17 and verse 22. I want to begin to show that to you. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, this would have been what some would translate as Mars Hill. He's there on this hill. He's before what you might consider the the city council of that day. These kinds of city leaders. He's been brought there by the Stoics and the Epicureans who want him questioned as to what he's teaching. And so he's been brought there to teach. Now, I'm not sure that the situation is entirely hostile. There are charges made against Paul that perhaps he's preaching foreign divinities. So it must be to some degree hostile. But it also seems to be a setting in which he's being given an opportunity to honestly answer in front of these civic leaders. And so he's there, and he begins by addressing them, saying, men of Athens. Now, he isn't addressing every man in the city of Athens. He's addressing their representative leaders of Athens. He says, men of Athens, I perceive, now notice this, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, how does Paul perceive that? Because Paul has spent time in the city. Paul has paid attention to what they're worshiping. He's listen to what they're saying he perceives that they're very worship or they're very worshipful if you will or very religious he knows that about them look what he goes on for as i passed along and observed the objects of your worship i found also an altar with this inscription now pay attention to this to the unknown god that's the inscription on the altar what therefore you worship is unknown this i proclaim to you now What's Paul noticing here? What's he observing? He's observing that in the marketplace, there's all sorts of interchange of ideas between pagan idolatry, Stoicism, Epicureanism. There's the Jewish monotheists who are preaching, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, what the Athenians were known for is essentially a kind of agnosticism. We know there's a God or gods, but ultimately we admit that we don't know who the God is. Or who the gods are. In fact, the reason we're so interested to hear the latest idea, the reason we gather to debate the ideas and take such joy in that is because at the end of the day, we recognize we don't really know. And Paul has learned that about them. He understands that to go to that altar and point at that altar is to sum up the heart of where the people there are. Not to go to the pagans, idols that they're worshiping, not to go directly to the Stoics or the Epicureans or even to the synagogue and say the Jewish monotheists are what you all believe. He knows at the end of the day, if he wanted to sum up Athens, it's right there. He knows that about them. He's taken time to get to know that about them. Look at what he goes on to do as well. Look at verse 27. Keep, continue down verse 27. He speaks about the fact that God has created all men and he says that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Now, interestingly, the way that Greek is structured, some argue that Paul is actually um, playing off of Homer. Homer in the Odyssey, if you remember the story where where Odysseus and his men go where the Cyclops is, and they stab the Cyclops in the eye, essentially, and the Cyclops is now blind, and he's groping around, trying to capture Odysseus and his men. And they're saying that, that Paul is actually so familiar with his own culture and time that he can quote, if you will, a Greek phrase that would have been potentially used by Homer. As you're, you're groping around in the dark for God, like the Cyclops is groping around for Odysseus. Blinded, can't see. Now, they, they argue whether he's quoting him or another thing from Socrates where Socrates is talking about reason and rationality, etc. I don't know what he's quoting from, but the fact that he's potentially quoting from Homer or Socrates tells you something, doesn't it? Now he goes on. Yet he's not actually far from each of us, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's probably quoting there Epimenides of Crete, another philosopher of that day. And if you go on, and as even some of your own poets have said, and now he, cro- now he quotes Erastus, a poet of that time, for we are indeed his offspring. So it seems that Paul is able to interchange with the Stoics and the Epicureans and the Jewish monotheists. He's potentially able to quote from Homer or Socrates, Epimenides, Erastus. He's taken time to get to know the people he's speaking to Paul demonstrates frankly here and I I'm, I'm barely touching on the surface of all that's underneath this I don't have time I'm just trying to give you a few examples that he's demonstrating a deep respect for the people of Athens respects them he's established a point of contact with them you have an altar to an unknown god Here's what your philosophers say. Here's what your poets say. Let's start there. He he treats them. I want you to hear this because it's important for us as Christians. He treats them as image bearers of God, and therefore he takes them seriously. Takes them seriously. He doesn't say, you're a bunch of pagans. You don't know anything. He wants to get to know them. He takes them seriously. They aren't targets. They're human beings. They aren't people on the other end of a camera who play the role of a rhetorical interlocutor while you show off your skills on some YouTube video for everyone to watch. They're image bearers of God. And Paul has taken the time to get to know them. They aren't people he can just wave a wand over and say, oh, you're unbelievers? Well, let me tell you what all of your worldview is. I'm going to sweep you up all into this one category and just dismiss you. He wants to know them. He wants to hear them well so he answers them properly. Paul's taking the time to get to know them, to understand their beliefs, to enter into teaching them with that knowledge. Please hear this. Paul respects the Athenians as image bearers of God who get some things right through general revelation. And he works to understand their theology. See, Paul understands, the same guy I wrote Romans 1. Verse 18, you, you know what? For the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does that mean they had to have to some degree beforehand? They had to have some knowledge of the truth. Now what Paul's talking about there is general revelation. For what can be known about God is, is plain because it's been demonstrated in creation. But they exchange the creature, the worship of the creature, or for the, the creator, sorry, for the creature. In other words, Paul knows that the people he interacts with have some sense there is a God and have some true thoughts about that God. The problem is they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But he doesn't say to them, you know what, metaphysically there's no way for you as an unbeliever to come to any right thoughts about God. Or to them, you have no epistemic basis on which to justify any of your thoughts I'm just going to dismiss you. Why should we listen to you? You're clearly a blind unbeliever. He understands that some of them are coming to truer ideas than others of them. Do you know that? You know that happens among unbelievers, right? Unbelievers come to a variety of ideas about God. Some unbelievers come to truer ideas about God, closer to the reality than others. Now, that's general revelation. None of that's saving. But Paul wants to start at the right place, which is understanding that they get some things right and then working to understand those things they've gotten right and taking them from there to the whole truth and critiquing the things they get wrong. So the question I have for you is, do you take time to hear the unbelievers around you? Take time to hear them. Do you listen to them? Do you hear what they really believe? Almost every week now, uh, or at least every other week, I've told you this before, I have lunch with um, one of the leaders in the local Muslim community, and uh, I've had people warn me about having lunch with him. You know what they tell me? He may say he doesn't believe terrorism is consistent with Islam, but Islam really does believe terrorism is consistent. He's lying to you. That's what they tell me every time. It's a warning, right, before I have lunch. I'm not sure they think is happening at lunch. We're just eating sandwiches, Okay. But they're always warning me of this. Listen, here's what's frustrating me to me in that warning. Does it matter whether Islam is consistent with terrorism or not? In a general sense? Or does it matter what the man sitting in front of me believes? The one whom I'm trying to evangelize? See, he may be wrong about what his own religion teaches. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to convert Islam to Christianity. I'm trying to see this man come to Christianity. I know it's easy to throw a label on someone. Listen, particularly uh, my British friend here at our church has reminded me that Americans are quite good at labeling things. It's a really quick way for us to just dispose of people. What are you? I put the label on you, good. Now I can just move on. I know what box to stick you in. I don't have to think much about it. It's easy to throw a label and then declare to them what they believe, but it's cheap. It's unloving. It's dismissive. It doesn't see them as an image bearer of God. It's hard work to get to know the person sitting in front of you, isn't it? And the nuances of what they believe. You know, one of the reasons we started Radius International, which plants churches among the unreached people groups, is because of our commitment to the fact that the missionaries, when they come to a people group who don't have the gospel in their language, need to be able to hear what it is those people believe. They need to learn their language and their culture. And they need to know whom they're communicating to. You have to know the language and the culture of a people so you know how to proclaim the gospel to them because you need to know what they're hearing when you speak. You all know this. You can speak, but that doesn't mean that the other person's hearing what you're saying. I'm not talking about the kind of thing where my wife says to me, Chad, did you listen to me? Uh Uh-huh. Tell me what I said. Uh. That's not what I'm talking about. That's just I'm not really listening. You know, right? Okay. I'm talking about you speak and someone hears something very different than what you communicated. I'll give you an example. You start saying to someone, Jesus is savior. But from what? Savior from what or who? Who is God? Who is man? What is our problem? Who is Jesus and what does it mean that he saves? We need to know what people are hearing when we speak. If I say to a large crowd of unbelievers in America, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, they aren't going to say to me, thank you, we weren't aware of that. They're going to say, of course we know God loves us. Of course he has a wonderful plan for our life. Isn't isn't it true? What, What do they hear? Do they hear God loves you the way the Bible means God loves you? Or do they hear God affirms you in whatever you want to do with your life. Wonderful plan for your life. Do they hear, God wants you to be saved by looking to Jesus Christ whom he sent for you, and apart from him you're condemned? Or do they hear, God wants to make things work out for you so that life is more prosperous and happy? This is the thing you have to understand. Your audience is hearing something when you're speaking. Do you get to know them well enough to know what they're hearing? See, I can shout, Jesus is the answer from every street corner in the city, but Jesus is only the answer if they're asking the right questions. You might be intimidated by the thought that you need to hear people before proclaiming Christ to them. That might seem a little intimidating might be a little tough. You know, does that mean I have to reshape the gospel every time I talk to somebody? No. Every time I come to a new audience, do I have to have a different message? No. That's not what it means. It's not what it means. It means I have to understand the right starting point, the right questions those people are asking that I want to answer. Gospel's the same. Which leads to my next point. What Paul preached How did he preach? He was respectful. He took them seriously. What did he preach? Paul's audience here in Athens is comprised of the most educated men in the world in his day. That's who he's speaking to. And here's the question. How did Paul evangelize the most educated men in the world? What is his approach as he comes before these Gentile philosophers? Is his approach radically different is it radically different than how the apostles approach the evangelism of other groups of people, Jews or god fears or just kind of rank uneducated idolaters? Does Paul go grasping for a devastating philosophical critique? Does he dismiss their unbelieving philosophy altogether? How does he approach it? What does he say to them? What's his message? Look at Acts 17, again. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said men of Athens I perceive that in every way you are very religious for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown god what therefore you worship is unknown this I proclaim to you Paul is starting with the questions they're wrestling with they're religious Very religious, but they admit they don't know who God is. They say God is unknown and Paul is agreeing with them. He wants to start, you're right, you are ignorant about who God is. But I know him. I know the true God. So Paul uses their ignorance about the identity of God as a jumping off point. You want to know who he is? I can tell you who he is. Folks to preach the gospel we must necessarily begin. I want you to hear this. We must necessarily begin with who God is. Who's God? Pauls following the method of the apostles in this by the way. I can show you this in every single evangelistic sermon in Acts, but I'm just picked 3 quickly. So keep your hand in Acts 17 and look at Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. If you're familiar with this, Post Pentecost, Paul, sorry, not Paul, Peter and John, Peter and John have gone and healed a lame beggar. Peter and John have healed this lame beggar, and, and there's, there's quite a, a bit of noise about the healing of this lame beggar in Solomon's portico. And so, so the people want to know about it. Now look at verse 11 of chapter 3. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Now who's his crowd? His crowd is a crowd of Jews who believe the Old Testament at the temple, seeing this man who's been healed, rushed there to hear about it. And Look what he says. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power we pray and have made him walk? See, now the men of Israel are there, and Paul knows, or Peter, sorry, knows the question in their mind. Peter realizes the question in their mind is how did this happen? Who did this? Where's the power from to heal this man? He knows that's their question, and so he starts there. Look what he says. He starts with God. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? Look verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. In other words, we want to start with who is God? Who is he? Now to this Jewish audience, they are incredibly familiar with the Old Testament, so he wants to say, the God I'm talking about is the God you already know in the Old Testament, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's the God who we worship. That's the God who healed this man. We're not presenting to you some other God. We're presenting the God you know from the Old Testament. Now, he wouldn't called it the Old Testament. That would have been the Bible then. But That's the God we're talking about. Look at Acts chapter 10. Peter is then sent um, in Acts 10 to the house of Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile. What you need to understand about Cornelius is that he is a Gentile, i.e. a non-Jew, and he's a God-fearer. That means he believes in the God of Israel. But he worries that God has elected Israel and the Jews, the, the ethnic children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he has not elected the Gentiles. And so does God see me the same way he sees them, Now how do I know that? Because look at the jumping off point for Peter. Go down in Acts chapter 10 as Peter comes to speak to him about the gospel. And Peter's just had this vision. Just had this vision that Gentiles are included in the people of God. They've been declared clean. Now look at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand. Now notice the starting point. That God shows no partiality. See God doesn't favor Jews over Gentiles. He shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, and then he goes into the gospel. Now here's the question. Why does he start with, I'm talking about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob with Jews, and then start with, I'm talking about the God who shows no partiality, but he will save people from every nation with a God-fearing Gentile, because their questions are different. Peter Are you bringing witchcraft into the temple? Are you bringing the worship of false gods in the temple? No. The God I proclaim to you, the God whose gospel I'm going to make known to you, that's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Peter, would God accept me as a Gentile? Doesn't God favor the Jews, the God I'm preaching to you, the God of the Old Testament that you've already been believing, Cornelius? He wants to save men from every tribe and tongue and nation. He doesn't show favoritism. Chapter 14. Paul now and Barnabas come across a group of what you might call uneducated idolaters. These are not sophisticated philosophers like at Athens. These are average, common, not highly educated folks who are caught up in pagan idolatry. Chapter 14, as Paul and Barnabas come to them in Lystra, says this, look at verse 12, after they had done, or verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, verse 11, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. In other words, here are Paul and Barnabas doing this and they think the gods have come down and they're thinking the Greek gods. So they say, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker, the messenger of Zeus, right? And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd, crying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. Listen, that you should turn from these vain things, idolatry, to a living God. Now, I want to start with these pagans and identify what living God I'm talking about, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's the creator of all things. There's one God. He's the creator of everything. Peter never has to say that to a group of Jews, nor does he have to say that to a group of God-fearing Gentiles. They already believe that God created everything. They're misunderstanding who God is, what the Old Testament Scriptures have said, and so he wants to correct their understanding of God and launch from there to the gospel. In this case, these men have false gods, so he's going to go right back to the fact that the gospel I'm preaching is from a god who created everything. Now, my point being this. On every occasion, the apostles understand their audience and the theology of God they have, and they start there. So in Athens, you have an inscription of an unknown God. The God you don't know, I know him, and I'm going to proclaim him to you. They start with who God is. Who is God? Who are we? What is life really about? What's our purpose? What's our problem? And they understand that those questions are there, and the gospel must begin by biblically recasting someone's understanding of God and of themselves. By themselves, I mean this, what a man is. Unfortunately now, we have to, when we say, you have to re, you have your understanding of God and your self recast. Everybody hears the word self. They hear the word self in psychological categories. Who am I anyway? And, and what's my personality type? And what are my strengths? And can I take a strength finder test? And how does the gospel respond to my personality and strengths? Who cares? You're a man. You were created by God in the image of God. And you're a sinful man. Now you say, I'm talking that, again, gender inclusive. In the fall, right, condemned we all. We were all condemned in the fall with Adam. We were all created by the same God. We have to understand that. So you have to recast people's understanding of what man, the self even is. If you're going to preach the gospel to them. Because otherwise, they immediately hear, when you start saying Jesus wants to save you, they, from yourself, they hear, Jesus wants to save me from my hurts, habits, and hang-ups. No. Jesus wants to save you from your wickedness and rebellion. Jesus doesn't want to save you from, you know, by declaring, you are a victim. Let me save you from all those who victimized you. He wants to save you from, you are a rebel against my holy will. Let me bring forgiveness to you for that. We have to recast who God is, who man is. So that's what Paul does. He starts with who God is. So verse 24 of Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it. Okay, wants want to start with, I'm talking about God, the creator. He created everything. That's the God who I know. He's the God who is the creator. And he's being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. There's a lot to say here about this verse, but the idea here is God is the creator and he's transcendent. He's transcendent. You can't capture him in a building or an idol. He created everything. How are you going to contain him? He transcends it all. He's the Lord of it all. He created it all. What's interesting, by the way, just as a side note, When Paul says he does not live in temples made by man, one might stop and ask the question, who's Paul quoting? We could say, well, Paul's quoting Isaiah 66. Okay. But where did Paul hear Isaiah 66 proclaimed in this way? He heard it from Stephen when he oversaw his martyrdom. So the man whom Paul oversaw the martyrdom of, Paul learned from that sermon and now uses it in Athens. Fascinating. Wondered, did Stephen's sermon have an impact on Paul? Clearly. Even the man who persecuted and killed him. So he says, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. In other words, God is a se, you know what that means? He's of himself. He doesn't need anything. He's independent. There wasn't a time where he was not. He isn't becoming anything. You don't add anything to him, he is. That's why he says, his name, I am. He is pure being, if you will. He's pure act, he isn't moved by anything. He isn't improved upon by anyone, he is. He's God. And he is the one who has life in himself. Look what he says. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the one who has life in himself and he sustains all others. So here's the question. What can you do to add to God? Nothing. Everything you do, he gave you. He created it. You do nothing to add to him. He sustains you. The moment God stops sustaining you, you would disintegrate into nothing. God is sovereign further, he says, over the nations and peoples. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man, a reference to Adam, which we'll come back to in a minute, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their, in other words, the nation's dwelling place. He's not talking about individuals here, though I would tell you that God has determined the time and place in which you live. That is true by extension. But theologically, he's talking here about the fact that God is sovereign over all the nations. He determines where they are, when they are. There's nothing that happens in human history that he is not in control of. Further, he goes on to say, verse 27, why why does he control all these nations the way he does? That, here's the end, that they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way or feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, now notice this phrase, yet he's not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. God is near us, and he's created us for fellowship with himself. How do we know he's near us? Because in him we live, live and move and have our being. Now, I want you to stop and think about the depth of that some, to some degree. I, I wish I had time to just give a whole lecture on that, but I don't. Right, we're in a sermon, so what, what's he getting at here? He's getting at the fact that that. God gives you life and sustains your life and he gives you motion and you you have being because he gives you being. There's nothing about your life that that you have apart from him, whether you recognize it or not. Um, I saw R.C. Sproul talking about this. Um, He he picked up a pen and he held the pen in his hand he said, are you ready? Watch this. He threw the pen up in the air and then he caught the pen and he said, now, Did my hand make that pen move? Did I give it motion? Yes. I gave it motion. But he said, here's the thing we have to understand, what Paul's saying here. In him, we live and move and have our being. That even the motion of my hand giving motion to that pen, that motion is given to me by God. He moved me. He's the, the mover who isn't himself moved by any. He's the one who gives being to those who are becoming. Though he never becomes anything, he is. He's the one who has life in himself and who gives life to those who, apart from him, have no life, you understand? We are the creature, he is the creator. And Paul wants to make that clear. But here's the amazing thing, he wants to have fellowship with us we're created for that end further god is the holy judge just go down to verse 31 he talks about the fact that many need to repent and he says this he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed in other words god is not only all of these things he is the judge and he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed Now the next question is then, who is man? If that's who God is, and folks, I just barely scratched the surface of what Paul's saying here, barely. If that's who God is, who's man? Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. What's the first thing we need to understand about man? He's created, created by God. Verse 25, he's dependent. He, gives him, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So man is created. Man is dependent. Man descends from Adam and is governed by God, verse 26. And he made from one man, Adam, every nation. So not only are we created and dependent, we are made from one man, Adam. We all descend from him. And we're governed by God. We're not in America in this era by mistake or by happenstance. It's because God sovereignly determined that. Further man is created for fellowship with God. Verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. What's the problem and why we don't find God? Is it that he's far away? Why, why does man grope around in the dark like blind people, not finding him? Because he's far, God, God's far away? No, because we're blind. Because we're blinded by sin, thus we're unable to find him. We're created for fellowship with him, but our own sin blinds us for finding him. Man's idolatrous, verse 29, being then God's offspring, We ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, we're natural idol makers, right? We're just constantly cranking out new idols. Man is ignorant of God. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. There's this time of ignorance and God has overlooked it among the Athenians. They are ignorant of God. Man is condemned in facing judgment, verse 31, because he's fixed today in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he's appointed. In other words, we're condemned. So we're created, dependent, descended from Adam, governed by God, created for fellowship with God, but blinded by our sin and unable to find him. Idolatrous, ignorant of God, condemned in facing judgment. So once Paul has proclaimed who God is and who the Athenians are and what their problem is, then he moves to the good news. You guys follow me on that? Then he moves to the gospel. And when you look at Acts 17, 30 through 31, you get like a sermon in summary, if you will. It's like a sermon in summary. Look what he says, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Now I want to stop there just for a second. What what does he mean by the times of ignorance? Times of ignorance God has overlooked. Scholars argue about this phrase. Does it mean that God um, sort of looked askance at those who are ignorant? In other words, if you think of Romans 1, 18 and following, the wrath of God is presently revealed against all the unrighteousness and godliness of men. And then it goes on in very three times in that passage to say God turned them over to their sin. He turned them over to their sin. He turned them over to their sin. And so the question some scholars are, arguing, are asking is, is this a negative kind of overlooking? The English translation sounds very generic. But is it that the times of ignorance, God sort of looked askance at. In other words, he looked at and said, since you're such blind pagan idolaters, I'm just going to leave you in your sin and send you no revelation of the gospel. For now. And then then you get the, but now. Here comes the revelation of the gospel. You guys follow me on that? Okay, is that, is that what's being said here, or is what's being said here that God has patiently withheld final judgment for your sin? You deserve final judgment all along, but he's patiently withheld that final judgment for your sin, but now judgment's coming. Um, I don't know. I, I just don't. I mean, older scholars prefer that the idea that this is very negative and God has essentially said, I'm not sending you any revelation. They look at that redemptive historically. In other words, they say, God sent revelation to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the Jews, but God did not send revelation to the Gentiles until at which time Christ came. And now that the gospel is going forward to the Gentiles, what's happening is that's the but now. That you, you were in these times of ignorance, God left you in your sin, but now he's bringing you the gospel. That's the older view. The more contemporary view is that God was... Patient in not bringing final eschatological judgment, but now that Christ has come, pay, the time for patience, if you will, is sort of coming to an end. The day that that day has come, that the gospel is now being proclaimed, and Jesus will return and judge the living and the dead. I'm not sure. The second option is more modern, probably because it sounds more, you know, more positive in some ways. But I don't know. Here, here's the point. Here's the point. Paul's saying the gospel has come. Jesus has come. You were in ignorance, but no more. No more. The revelation of the good news is here. What's the proof that the revelation of the good news is here? Jesus has come. He lived perfectly in our place. You might say, where do you get all that freight to put into these two verses? Because it just says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he gave, has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Listen, if you just go by inference, Paul did not preach a two-sentence gospel message. Luke is summarizing, and he's summarizing assuming you've been reading his book and you've seen the much longer gospel presentations up to this point, and that you read his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, and you know this story, so he's summarizing, and he's boiling it down for you, what Paul preached to them. When he preaches repentance, what does he have to preach to preach repentance? Sin, violation of the law. If he's, repeat, if he's preaching the fact that he to turn to repent and turn from impending judgment, what does he have to tell them? That there's the possibility of forgiveness. If he's going to preach to them that someone resurrected, what does he also have to tell them? That someone died. You guys follow me on that? So he's preaching the gospel to them. That Christ lived perfectly in our place. He kept the law. He did not rebel against God as we did. He wasn't a blind man groping around in the dark who couldn't find God. God was near to him and he was near to God from his conception. He paid for our sins on the cross. He went there and in our place condemned he stood. He took the wrath of God, the judgment of God that's due to us upon himself. He did that for you Athenians. He rose from the dead for our justification. He conquered sin and death. He squashed, if you will, the head of Satan. And he brought us justification, the declaration of righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins. He ascended to the right hand of God from where he rules and reigns and from where he will return to judge the living and the dead. Believe in him. He is the Lord and Savior, and you must repent of your sins, turn from your rebellion Turn from your self-righteousness and look to Jesus. Believe in him. Trust him. Rest in him. Receive him. He's enough for you. You will be forgiven. You will be declared righteous. His grace is greater than all your sins. Look to him. He alone saves If you do not, you are condemned already and you will face the final judgment when it comes for you, when Jesus returns. Look to Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Savior and Lord. Now, what was the reply to Paul's proclamation of the gospel? What did they say? Paul, we're so impressed with all of your learning. We're so moved by your ability to sum things up well. What does it say? Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. This actually means they, they basically started laughing out loud. Like they didn't text each other, LOL, right? Okay. Okay. They literally laughed at him. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They they said out loud, what a stupid, silly, foolish man. What a ridiculous claim he's making. But others said, we will hear you again about this. In other words, There's this crowd who completely rejects him and mocks him, rejects Christ and mocks him. There's this crowd who's like, we'd like a little more information. Okay? And then, so Paul went out from their midst, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. They became part of the church. It's interesting, that's the language Paul continues, or Luke continues to use in Acts 17. It's not just that they... Intellectually assent to something; they join a community. Joined him and believed. Among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Now, there these names come up later in the New Testament. Some argue that Dionysius the Areopagite was the first bishop in Athens. We're we're not quite sure. There's some historical evidence that direction. Some. Some weakness to that historical evidence as well. So I don't know, but these people obviously become names that are important in, in the ministry of the early church. Names Luke would assume that his initial audience would have known. But here's the point some folks mocked him and laughed at him at the end of the day, and some folks believed and joined the church. Those who did not believe said, What a fool. For the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Others said, we will hear more, and they believed. Because for us who are being saved, the gospel is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Sovereign Grace, I pray we're willing to listen well and respectfully to unbelievers, to treat them as image bearers of God who deserve to be treated with seriousness, I pray we're willing to open our mouths and proclaim the gospel to them. I pray that we are willing to be openly mocked for the sake of the salvation of others. And I pray that the Lord will be pleased to save many through us. That said, let me pray. Father, we ask ask that you would cause us by your spirit to Treat everyone you've created as an image bearer. We would take them seriously that we would be respectful, that we would hear well, understand them, and that when we have, that we would be willing to open our mouths and proclaim the gospel. Help them to see who God is, who we are, Help them to see our own sin and rebellion, your great loving provision in Christ, and that they would turn to him and be saved. I pray we'd be willing to be mocked and called fools, and laughed at, humiliated, so that Christ would be greatly known, so that people would be saved. We pray you would be pleased, Father, to save many, many people through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.